uh, we're going to continue our series, Whatever Happens Today. And it is a series that is uh, rooted in a statement that the Apostle Paul made to the church in Rome. Uh, it's really one of the great statements in the Bible, probably could be one of the most well-known uh, passages in all of the Bible. And uh, if this is your first week with us, we welcome you today. Uh, this is kind of our fourth week in this series, and we've been trying to memorize just this one particular passage. So we're going to read it out loud today, and hopefully by today, those of you who've been with us, you'll have committed this to memory. Uh, it's Romans 8.28. We'll put it on the screen for you now. And uh, we're just going to recite it together. Here we go. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Now, in a couple of weeks, we're going to put that back up, uh, and hopefully you'll know it uh, by then. Maybe we won't even put it up at that point. Uh, we're trying to put it to our memory because this is such a magnificent thought from the Apostle Paul. In all the stuff that goes on in life, we should always remember that whatever happens, the idea is not that we have better stuff or better things, but uh, or even that better stuff happens to us, but it's that in all that stuff, whatever happens, God is at work, and he's doing good in us to build character, the character of Jesus. And it brings us today to the topic that we're going to talk about, and that is the idea of growth. You know, to grow is such a fabulous thing as a human being. And to spiritually grow, to grow in character, is maybe the most important type of growth at all. But there is something very humbling about it. It's a very interesting thing to me. Everybody that I talk to will find at some point in their lives that they get kind of disappointed in this area. In other words, they thought that they would be more spiritually mature or have grown more at this point in their journey. They thought that they would be more stable, more rooted, more grounded, more mature in their faith. So I thought this morning that I would ask you here just to be kind of blunt and honest, real honest, if anyone here ever feels disappointed in their spiritual growth. In other words, by now in your life, you thought that you would be praying better or regularly, or at least when you prayed, your mind wouldn't wander to the hundreds of things that you needed to do. Maybe by now you'd find that you would be less anxious and a lot more trusting in God. Maybe you sit here today and you're a little disappointed, maybe a lot disappointed, because you thought by now that you would be over certain temptations, yet they still trouble you, you still fall, you still make mistakes. Maybe you thought by now that you would be much, much better with your finances. You'd be more generous. You'd be able to make a difference in the world and help other people who didn't have much in their life. At least by now, you thought you'd be a better family person, a better spouse, a better parent, maybe a better brother or sister, a better friend. Maybe you thought you'd share your faith boldly and share the gospel boldly. That you'd have a better grip on what you said and how you said it, but yet you still let angry things fly, even stupid things, things that you don't even mean to say. <laughs> you just thought that by now you would know God better and you'd follow him closely. Now, you know, sometimes we do mass confessions, and I just ask you to raise your hands if you can relate to that at all. Well, today this is a little bit more serious, not quite as lighthearted. So I'm going to ask you to do something a little more bold. I'm going to ask you if you have ever felt disappointed and your spiritual growth, if that's ever been true of you, I'm going to ask you to stand up right now. Okay. All right, just look around for a second. I, by the way, I'm standing too, okay? <laughs> 
Okay, you can sit down for a second. That's how serious this topic is. We're going to talk today about a great mystery of the faith. I think it is maybe one of the deepest mysteries of all. In a text, in a parable that Jesus told one time, he talked about this. It's actually kind of an obscure text. I believe it's only in the Gospel of Mark. And this is what it says. It says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground day and night, night and day. Whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Growth is such an amazing thing. The guy in this parable is involved, but notice that he's not controlling it. He's not manufacturing the growth. In fact, he doesn't even really understand it. A lot of times, it's going on regardless of what we do or what we think or even if we realize it. It's true about growth. It's true about spiritual growth. And that growth, the change in a person's character, the change in their heart, is maybe the most important process, think about this, going on in the entire universe. Galaxies, they come and they go. Empires, they rise and they fall. And they really are trivial in comparison and we think about this in quiet moments and we remember for anybody to move closer to God, closer to Jesus, to live a life of hope rather than despair, to become truthful and honest when they could easily lie and hide from people, to be liberated or freed from an addiction, to move toward heaven and away from hell, that is maybe the most important process going on in the entire world. Now, here's some honesty from me today, and I think Robbie will probably agree with me on this. I've spent a lot of my life doing pastor stuff, right at 30 years. I've studied scripture. I've learned about human behavior. I've read a lot of books on spiritual dynamics. Things like how do people change? What happens? Why is it so hard? Think about this. Robbie and I, this is mostly what we do in our life whether it be here or whether it's Robbie at the college or somewhere in this world. And I was thinking about this this week. When I go home and I take off my pastor hat and I just think about people, people inside the church, people outside the church, sometimes I get so frustrated I can't stand it. <laughs> Why does it seem so hard for people to mature and grow? More importantly, when I look in the mirror, I go, why is it so hard for you, buddy boy, to grow? I think about areas that I struggle with and questions that I still have about why certain people change and other people do not. Now, this is just being real honest today. Maybe you don't struggle with this. But I thought this morning that maybe we could start by just naming some of the mysteries, like the guy in this parable, what are some of the mysteries that we see so we can kind of move toward clarity? Here's some questions I have. These may just be me. How come there are some people who believe in God or say they believe in God? They're in the church. Maybe they go their whole life to church year after year after year. Yet they are the most joyless, loveless, 
Their kids can't even stand them. Nobody wants to be around them. Judgmental people in the world. Then there are people, to be quite honest, who I'm not even sure believe in God, yet they seem to be quite joyful and seem to be quite honest and quite generous. How in the world is God going to sort that out? Why is it that some believers are knuckleheads and some unbelievers are fabulous, wonderful people? I don't know. Why is it that right out of their mother's wombs, it seems like some little babies grow up and all they do is struggle? They struggle with anxiety and depression. They're going to be fearful and super shy and going to be socially awkward maybe their whole life. Relationships are going to be so difficult for them. In fact, relationally, they're going to have a tin ear their entire life. And then there are other people when they are born, they just seem to be these fabulous personalities with a high level of resilience. They're cheerful and they're emotionally intelligent. And they leave what seems to be a charmed life right out of the womb. I don't know. Why is it that some parents work so hard? They read every book, they go to seminars, they pray daily for their kids, they get them involved in church, and their kids grow up and just break their heart. And there are other parents who are absolute train wrecks. <laughs> their lives are train wrecks. Their marriages are train wrecks. They do just about everything you can do wrong as a parent. And their kids grew up to be some of the most fabulous people you will ever meet. I do not know. Why is it that the formula for spiritual growth seems to be so elusive? One guy can read the Bible. He gets empowered by it. It's like God becomes such a reality to him. And you look at people like that and you say, man, I would love to live that way. And someone else reads the same exact Bible and all it does is make them arrogant and judgmental and puffed up and all they do is try to win argument after argument. I don't know. Why is it some people can even be experts on spiritual growth, yet when you get around them, you don't want to be around them? I don't know. Some of you are probably wondering right now, why does this church have a guy giving sermons about so many things he doesn't know? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's a strange, crazy thing. We wrestle with stuff. We look around. We say, why is it so hard? <laughs> and then we ask the question, and this is the question we really ask, honestly. We say, is it worth it? Like, really, is it worth it? Like, hanging in there and going to church and being in a life group and trying to reach out to God and serving people on Second Saturday, is it really worth it? And here's what I want to say to you after all that. Yes. Growth happens. You know, I've seen it. I've seen it in a young guy who was enslaved, so enslaved by alcohol that he would have been destroyed within just a few months. But he met Jesus, and Jesus interrupted his life, and he became a part of a little community that we were a part of at the time. And he went through those steps that a lot of people have gone through where they surrender their wills to God. And I don't really know any other way to describe it, but this young guy became a new person. I remember sitting down with three young kids 
to explain to them that their mom and dad were not going to be living together anymore. Their dad had betrayed their family in some very, very bad ways. But God got a hold of this guy's life, and he began to grow spiritually and learn about fidelity and truthfulness and love. And listen, that family, that family of five, went from death to life. I know of a guy right now who is so afflicted by anxiety, so insecure, that every day, every single day when he went to work, he would get so sick to his stomach that he would have to pull over on the side of the road and throw up. Some of you say, well, that sounds like my job. He must have been going where I worked. <laughs> and this guy came to know Jesus and this wonderful community of support. And over time, listen, he grew to the point where he actually had people come to him so he could pray with them about anxiety and about insecurity. What I'm trying to say to you, friends, is growth happens. So with that thought in mind this morning, I want to give you what are really just kind of some I believe statements, just kind of creedal statements about growth that I think are still worth pursuing. So if you've been discouraged or if you've been disappointed or if you've kind of given up, to be honest, maybe today you can kind of re-engage and think about these four things. Here's the first one. I really do believe that growth toward Christ-like character is worth 100% commitment. You know, everybody in this room, if you talk to people, they want to they flourish. They want to thrive. But there is an opportunity, an offer like the one Jesus gave that has never been made before by human beings. When Jesus said the words, follow me. And for centuries now, people have found that when they really discover that, when they choose that, and they find out that if they lose everything the world has to offer, but if they find this treasure, this Jesus, that losing all that other stuff really doesn't matter. And interestingly enough, if they get all that other stuff, but they lose out on faith and on Jesus, all that stuff doesn't matter either. People would hear this in Jesus' day. They would say, man, I will do whatever it takes and I'll do it with great joy, leaping and shouting and clapping all the way. Remember these stories that Jesus would tell, these crazy stories? They had kind of um, an undignified quality sometimes to them. He would say, the kingdom of God is like a man who found a treasure in a field and when the man found it, he went and hid it. That's a pretty sneaky thing to do. Just so you know, Jesus is not recommending sneaky real estate practices if you're a realtor here, okay? He's saying this is what that strong desire is like to be in the kingdom. He said the guy would hide it so he wouldn't lose it. When a man found it, he hid it again and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. <laughs> again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. See that line about selling everything you have? People didn't, in Jesus' day, they didn't go, oh, this is so hard. I'm such a martyr. <laughs> this is so difficult what he's asking me to do. They're like, this is the best thing I ever found. <laughs> That'd be crazy to pass up this opportunity. I'm trying to think of a parable in our day. Several months ago, there was this viral video that came out. It went viral on the internet. It was called Pizza Rat. You ever see this? Pizza Rat. 
Millions of people saw this video. A little rat in New York City on a subway set of stairs got a piece of pizza. Now listen, everybody I know hates rats. Pretty much everybody I know loves pizza. Okay? There's this little rat and he loves his pizza so much that he's down there and he will not go away. To watch shall compare the kingdom of God. It's like a little rat that found the perfect piece of pizza. And that little rat said, I don't care what happens. I will devote every ounce of my energy to this one piece of pizza. And become an internet sensation. <laughs> to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like a team that hasn't won the World Series in 108 years. And finally, they not only make it there, they pull off the most amazing comeback and win the whole thing. And it made Jesus so happy. <laughs> and that has nothing to do with this message, but I just love the Cubs. <laughs> to know Jesus, to love Jesus, to follow Jesus, to be aligned with Jesus, to be changed by Jesus, is worth every ounce of devotion you can put to it. And listen, I get it this morning. I totally get it. When we talk about devotion in this day and time, it is not something that people want to hear. Here's what happens in, a thought, in kind of a talk like this. There'll be people in this room who will get kind of fired up on the inside and they'll say, let me understand this right. I'm supposed to sacrifice my time and my effort and my pride and my achievements. I'm supposed to give up career advancement and put my family first. I'm supposed to alter my lifestyle for the sake of the poor. I'm supposed to be a part of a life group when I'd rather really just stay home and veg out. I'm supposed to confess my secret temptations to other people, even though it may be a little bit humiliating. I'm supposed to go to other people when I hurt them and I've done something wrong and I'm actually supposed to apologize and make it right. I'm supposed to ask God to change me from the inside out verbally by my actions and by my words. I'm supposed to surrender my will, give up my autonomy, say to another being in the universe, not my will but yours be done, moment by moment, hour by hour, every day, every week, every month, every year of my life. Yep. <laughs> That's exactly what I mean. That's exactly right. And here's the deal. If you're not giving your devotion to that, I promise you you're giving it to something else. So I want to ask you this morning, at this point in your life, have you really decided that you're going to follow Jesus? Not a church, not a religion, not a movement. Are you going to follow Jesus with your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Now listen, I want to say this again. You can't manufacture the spiritual growth in your life. The book of Proverbs put it this way. A life devoted to things is a dead life, a stump. A God-shaped life is a flourishing tree. This is a great contrast between a tree and a stump. A tree cannot make itself grow, friends. Growth is a gift. Growth just happens. But here's what a tree can do. A tree can put down roots. You can't control it. You can't manufacture it. The only way to grow or flourish in your character is to put down roots. And that is worth 100% commitment. Here's the second thing. I also believe 100% commitment to spiritual growth should be normative in a church. In other words, it should be normal. It should not be heroic. It should not be extraordinary. It should just be ordinary. 
It should be what we do. Again, much like AA, the group AA, to follow the steps, it isn't a contest or it isn't a competitive thing. We don't compare each other to one another. There's just life, and then there's the alternative to that. That's death. This is what Paul wrote one time in Ephesians. We read this, a portion of this, from a different version this morning. It says, No prolonged infancies among us, please. We'll not tolerate babes in the woods, small children who are an easy mark for imposters. God wants us to grow up, to know the truth, the whole truth, and tell it in love, like Christ in everything. We take our lead from Christ, who is the source of everything we do. He keeps us in step with each other. His very breath and blood flow through us, nourishing us so that we will grow up healthy in God, robust in love. Here's the deal. Darkness in this world, evil in this world, will want you to stay very vague and fuzzy about this. There is a huge difference between saying I'm 100% committed to something and actually being 100% committed. Everybody agree with that? When I got married to Robin many, many years ago, this year will be 23 years, I said, I want you to know, Rob, I'm 100% committed to having an egalitarian marriage. In other words, we're equals in everything. We are partners in serving and working everything. I really believe the Bible teaches that about a husband and a wife. I'm going to talk about that. I'm going to teach about that down the road. So when we got married, I said that. And then we had children. At one point, both of our girls were under the age of four. And at this point, Robin kind of asked me, are you really 100% committed to this whole equal marriage thing? You know, where division of labor and shared work and working around the house and owning it and understanding it and not wanting to be asked to be helped changing dirty divers and washing the dishes and doing the laundry and taking out the garbage and doing chores around the house and making sure stuff gets fixed, keeping track of doctor appointments and school appointments, et cetera, et cetera. Are you 100% committed to this? And at my, that point, I thought, well, you know, if you'll put another percentage on the table, I'll be glad to consider that one. <laughs> See, there's a big difference between being 100% committed and really being committed <clears throat> this is the thing about church this is from a book written centuries ago and it's kind of archaic language a little old but it has this very wonderful writing in it about commitment in the spiritual life it says the disciple of Jesus does not ask what is allowable and pardonable but what is commendable and praiseworthy and we'll read that again the disciple of Jesus does not ask what is allowable and pardonable, but what is commendable and praiseworthy. Somebody who gets it, somebody who is following, isn't asking, what can I get away with? Rather, they are asking, what will get me there? I've done a lot of job interviews in my day, a lot. I've never had someone ask, Phil, what's the least amount I can do and get this job today? Done a lot of weddings, a lot of weddings. I've never done one where the couple stands up there at the altar and their vow is, what's the least amount of fidelity I can offer and still stay married? If somebody is following Jesus and the vision of the kingdom of heaven, they're not asking, how much money can I keep before God gets upset? How much lust can I retain and indulge before God 
won't forgive me? How much bitterness or self-righteousness can I nurse in my heart before like, my seat in heaven is at risk? See, the issue isn't what will God allow. The issue is what does God want? What does God call me to? And it's not because God is severe and judgmental and angry or any of those. It's just because this is the best life. So I'll say it again. I believe it should be normal that we seek spiritual growth. The third thing I believe, and this is super important, is that spiritual growth requires community. Spiritual growth is not a solo sport. I cannot pursue it just on my own. Now, this is a remarkable claim Jesus made one time in Matthew's gospel. He said, and you know this, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And in community, we get into relationship with each other and we can tell the truth to each other. Now, here's what happens in my life. Now, you see if this happens in your life. There's usually a pattern in me that when someone is speaking into my life and they say something that compliments me, I want them to keep talking. If they tell me things that will make me feel good or look good, I'm open to that. But if you're going to say something to me that is difficult or hard or confrontational, I just prefer that you soften it down a little bit. A guy travels to Europe. He calls his wife back home and says, hey, how's everything going? She said, well, the cat died. He said, what in the world? He said, did you have to be so blunt about it? You just ruined my whole trip, babe. She said, well, how else would you have me to say it? He said, well, you could have broken it to me a little more gently. When I called him from Paris, you could have said the cat was on the roof and it fell off and it's not doing well. When I got to London, you could have said I had to take the cat to the vet. And when I made it back to New York, you could have said the cat's not doing well at all, babe. And then when I got home, you could have said, well, the cat actually died. That would have been a lot better. And so I said, okay, I'm very sorry. So then he asked, he says, by the way, how's mom doing? She said, she's up on the roof. <laughs> See, here's the thing. I'd really much prefer the truth to be softened, right? The writer puts it like this. The kisses of an enemy may be profuse, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. And that was a really smart person who wrote that. You know, a lot of times when you get to a certain point in your life and you have certain connections and friendships and relationships, you get kisses from the enemy all the time. And you think, man, this is really good. This feels really good. But see, that's your enemy. Your enemy is someone who doesn't love you enough to risk difficulty or pain or relational chaos. Doesn't want to risk enough to tell you the truth. But faithful and true are the wounds of a friend. I want to say this to you. If you come here to worship, we're glad you're here. But if you're not in community, if you do not have a relationship, you need it. Aristotle used to say, friendship is training in virtue. In the early church, they loved that. They loved that concept. This is why life groups are so important in our church. This is why Teresa O'Brien works so diligently to try to help people get connected as best they can. I want to say something this morning, too, to parents and to some of the young people that are here. We live in an era of time where, especially for our young people, 
for them to do well in life is a very, very hard thing. I don't know if we've ever lived in a time where there is more pressure on our kids. And I'm talking about even um, grade school, middle school, high school, our college kids. Never been a time in our life where there's been more pressure. How to achieve what they have to achieve, they have to do better. How's your GPA? What did you score on the SAT? What school are you getting into? I heard about a dad. He got so convicted about this. He prayed out loud in his life group. He said, God, forgive me for being more concerned about getting my kid into college than getting them into heaven. We just can't allow our kids to grow up under that. I'm going to give you four reasons why getting your kid into heaven is better than getting your kid into college. Number one, it costs less to get in. <laughs> heaven is a lot less expensive than Miami or Florida State or even one of those bottom of the barrel schools like Florida. <laughs> I mean, what? It has better housing. Jesus said he goes to prepare a place for you. And if Jesus is making it, friends, you're in good shape. Third, it has a much better and much more diverse population. It says every tribe and tongue and people and nation will be represented. It's going to be a glorious community. And finally, it has a much better administration. <laughs> we ought to be concerned with our kids going to college, but we also ought to be concerned with our kids growing in Jesus. And here's what happens, and it happens a lot in our church and a lot of different churches, is especially at the beginning of the school year, kids get fired up and they get involved and they want relationships and they want a place to hang out. But as the years go on, there's tests and there's homework and there's quizzes and there's pressures and there's activities and there's sports and there's leagues and there's teams, and they start to feel all the weight of that, and it gets heavier and heavier and heavier. And eventually, let me tell you what gets dropped. Spiritual community gets dropped. Parents, I want to say this. Be the parent. Sit down with your kid and give them wisdom and help them understand. Say, hon, this is how you need to prioritize your time. You want to arrange your life, here it is, so that it flows toward what matters most, not what puts the most pressure on you. You can help your young person, your young people in that way. Just put a stake in the ground and say, I'm going to make a commitment through this year that I'm going to make spiritual community important. Last thing, last statement. I believe every moment is an opportunity for spiritual growth in our lives. I love this kind of long quote from Dallas Willard. He says, we must accept the circumstances we constantly find ourselves in as the place of God's kingdom and blessing. God has yet to bless anyone except where they actually are. And if we faithlessly discard situation after situation, moment after moment, as not being right, we will simply have no place to receive his kingdom into our life. For those situations and moments are our lives. Our life represents and presents itself to us as a series of tasks. The Bible calls these trials and tribulations. Here's the first tribulation for some of you in this room. Waking up. Right? Commuting to work. Working. 
But the knowledge of the kingdom puts in us a position to welcome all of these with open arms. You will find in your life circumstances come every day from when you wake up that provide you the opportunity, the place to be with God and to grow precisely where you need to grow. In other words, if you wrestle with money, friends, if you need to grow in generosity and financial maturity, I promise you, you will find and you will face financial challenges in your life that will help you grow in that way. If you're in this room and you need to grow in patience, you will find yourself in some of the most frustrating circumstances of your life where you get to meet God and grow in patience. If you find yourself not being as loving as you want to be, you will find God send some of the most unlovable people into your life. And if that's not happening, we have a list here that we'll be glad to send you. Okay? <laughs> When the Bible talks about welcoming trials and tribulations, it's not these horrible, giant crises and diagnosis in your life. It's this everyday stuff. Jesus said there's going to be trouble in this world. James put it this way. He said, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you'll be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Here's what you can do this week. You can look at the stack of bills on your desk, and you can say, you are an opportunity for great joy. When you're on the freeway and you're in traffic on I-4, and it's backed up as far as you can see, that's when you say, you are an opportunity for great joy. When a cranky person comes into your life, maybe one you're sitting near right now, you can look at them and say, I consider you an opportunity for great joy. You're not going to grow all at once, friends. But Paul said, let us not become weary in doing well. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Why? Because growth happens. We're going to share in the table together this morning. But I'm going to leave you with this before we do. Many years ago when I was a youth pastor in the city of Tampa, I had a volunteer leader in my group. This guy was a bodybuilder. He was part owner in a gym. And Todd was a, just a fitness guru. I mean, he was a machine. I don't think he had an ounce of fat on him. So the pastor of the church, the senior pastor at the time, had this brilliant idea. This guy was going to help all the staff of our church get into better physical condition. So he offered uh, the opportunity to meet with Todd individually. And at our first meeting, meeting I sit down with Todd. He says, what is it you want to accomplish, Phil? I said, that's easy. I want to look like you. <laughs> so I said, well, the question then is, are you all in? I said, what do you mean? He said, listen, nobody drifts into a body like this. People think that you can do that, but you can't. He said, I lift weights until I'm sore. It feels like my body's on fire. He said, there'll be times in the morning, really uh, all the time, after a hard workout, I can barely tie my own shoes. Then I'll go the next day and do the exact same thing. I monitor every calorie that I bring into my body. 
I'll set the alarm sometimes and wake up in the middle of the night to ingest protein where my body is able to absorb it. He said, mostly I'm talking about pain, the ability to absorb kind of these mind-numbing levels of pain at time until you get through it. Are you willing to do that? I said, yes. That's why I look like I do today. <laughs> See, when it comes to Todd, listen, and this is so important. Maybe if you didn't hear anything else today, I hope you hear this. When it came to Todd, I was an admirer, not a follower. I would like to look how he looks, but I wasn't going to do what he did. Please hear me. Jesus is looking for followers. It is great to admire Jesus. That's how it always began. It always began with people getting around him and they go, wow, I admire this guy. That's great. But at some point, you have to move out of the category of admirer to follower. And one day, one of those friends of Jesus, he was an admirer. He became a follower. And these are the words that he penned. He said, dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, here it is, we shall be like him. That's the pizza. We shall be like him. We shall be known, and we shall be like him.